Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You may be seated. Those of you that are in first grade and below that, you may leave now to go to a kid's own worship. The rest of you can turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 will be in two chapters this morning, Revelation 12 and Revelation 14. As we conclude this sermon series this morning on what it means to be a missional church. Many of you know that we're going to India in about seven weeks. We'll be engaging the Bogota people of India, an unreached people group that doesn't know anything about Jesus. They are animistic Hindus, which means they are Hindus that believe in a multiplicity of gods, but they also believe in in worship animals. And a few weeks ago, our team was able to have our first webcam, our Skype webcam with our missionary partner. And as we engaged our missionary partner, he told a story about how just the day before he went into one of the Bogota villages. And he said, I attribute what happened to the prayers of your church. I've never seen a church like yours that has actually adopted an unreached people group and has been praying for three years. And so I walk into these villages and I know that things are happening spiritually because of your church. And let me tell you what happened. He walked into a village and and one of these um, elderly ladies came up to him, very concerned, and said, Would you please pray for my granddaughter who's been terrorized by demons? And the granddaughter comes up and... um, evidenced of foaming at the mouth and convulsing. And, and our missionary said in his Western mind, he thought that she probably just had epilepsy. And then he realized, no, this is a, this is a spiritual issue. So he, he went to reach out his hand to pray for this young girl, and she screeched, and she moved back, and um, he, he didn't quite know what to do. And so he, he said a prayer over this girl, and he said, this has never happened in the Bogta villages this type of spiritual activity, uh, almost demonic activity. And so uh, what we have here is that we are be going to the Bogta peoples here in a few weeks, and it's alarming to me, I'll just be honest with you, because we may be facing some things that we've never experienced before as American Christians, demonized people, people entrenched in pagan idolatry. And so we're going to be face-to-face with some things that we might not be prepared for, because, you see, as we go into these villages... With the gospel, Satan is adamantly opposed to the advancement of the gospel. And he's got people in blinders. He's got people in bondage. And so we're going to be in the intensity of this spiritual battle. And so one of the things that we need to come to grips with, whether we go to the Bogta villages of India or whether you talk to your next door neighbor, one of the things that we need to realize is if we're going to be a missional people, if we're going to be those that advance the gospel, we need to be prepared for a spiritual battle, an intense spiritual battle. 
What I want us to do this morning for just briefly is retrace our steps as we bring this sermon series to a close. First of all, Jesus himself was the ultimate missionary. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, lived among us. He was sent on a mission. He accomplished his mission. He died on the cross, cried out, it is finished, rose again. He's at the right hand of the Father. He looks us in the eye and says, I'm sending you out on a mission to declare the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. And as Jesus Christ sends us out on this mission, we will face two responses as we've seen over the past few weeks. One of hostility, one of shock, one of ambivalence. There'll be some people that when we share the gospel with them, they will be shocked that we believe Jesus is the only way. They'll be hostile. They may persecute us. They're going to be very upset that we're coming with the gospel. It'll be a response of shock. Other people, when we share the gospel with them, it'll be ambivalence. I really could care less what you're talking about. It's irrelevant to my life. Not outright hostility, but mainly just this blank stare of what does this have to do with my life? And as we saw a few weeks ago, it involves constantly praying. Praying for open doors. Praying for opportunities. Praying for those kairos moments when when God gives you a golden opportunity right into your lap. Are you going to take advantage of the kairos moment that God gives you to share the gospel? Is your your, uh, speech going to be seasoned with salt? Are you going to be gracious as you engage those that are lost? Giving them the hope that you have in Christ. And so hopefully a lot of you are using the intersect cards that we gave out a few weeks ago where you've written down people that you're praying for. Are you, are you diligently praying for those lost people? Are you praying for open doors? Are you inviting them to church? Are you investing in their lives? Hopefully uh, you're using those intersect cards as we think about what it means to be a missional church. And if you remember from the very first sermon I preached on this, I said, we're going to see how this unfolds in the whole New Testament. Now we've seen Jesus We've seen it in the Gospels, the mission. We've seen it in the early book, the early church in the book of Acts. We've seen episodes in Paul's life. We've seen it in the epistles, the letters. We, we looked at Colossians. Now, the, the, the last place we've got to go in the New Testament is where? Revelation. And a lot of times we think of Revelation as an apocalyptic book about the end times. But what I want to show you this morning is, is does the book of Revelation show the church being on mission? And I will say most definitely In graphic and colorful pictures, it will show how living a missional lifestyle is an extreme spiritual battle waged against Satan himself. So with that being said, let's look at Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. Revelation 12, 7 through 12. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
Now, obviously, I don't have time to go into all that Revelation has to do this morning. I'm not going to get out my charts and graphs like you see televangelists do. Maybe for another day that will happen. But what I want us to show you is that Revelation is a book, yes, of judgment. It's a book of end times. It's a book of visions. It's an apocalyptic book. It's written to seven churches in Asia Minor. But one of the things that I want us to see is that we, we can bring all those things into, into play someday. But for today, what I want us to see is how does Revelation show the church, God's people, being engaged in this epic battle when the gospel goes forth and trying to convert lost souls to the power of the sovereign grace of God? How are we in the, the crosshairs of the devil? One thing you need to know about Revelation. I'm going to give you a little teaching here. You may not agree with everything I say this morning, okay? Anytime you teach Revelation, there's always bound to be differences of opinion. One of the things you need to understand about Revelation is that there are heavenly scenes and there are earthly scenes. And many times these scenes are describing the same event but told from two different angles, two different camera angles, Okay? Think of Revelation as watching a movie. You've got different camera angles pointing in on the same event. You will be confused if you read Revelation like a novel. Don't read it in linear fashion from beginning to end like you would a novel. Sometimes there's repetition. Sometimes there's parallelism. Sometimes the same things show up. It's different camera angles going on, sometimes showing the same scene. And what we have before here is a heavenly scene, something that happens up in heaven. Now, we don't know exactly when this happens. Uh, Somebody that's smarter than me maybe can explain that to you. But what we see here is a war between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. Now, when this war was waged, we really don't know. All we know is that the devil was thrown down. That word shows up four times in this text. The devil and his angels were thrown down. Literally, in the Greek text, that word means they were kicked out. In other words, Satan was kicked out of heaven along with his fallen angels and his demons. There was no room for them in heaven, so they were thrown down. So what I want us to do here is recognize the insidious descriptions that John has given for our enemy, the devil. Notice what he's called. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, he's the serpent. This harkens back to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden to eat the forbidden fruit. He is the serpent. Notice what else he's called. He's called the devil. The word devil just means slanderer, accuser. He accuses us before God. He tries to make us as believers feel that we're unworthy, tries to make us feel that we're guilty, tries to make us believe that none of our sins have been forgiven by Jesus on the cross. As a matter of fact, if you go down in verse 10, notice that it says he's the accuser of the brothers who has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He accuses us. He comes against us. He slanders us. That's what the word devil means. He's also called Satan. Satan means enemy, adversary, opponent. We see this word show up in 1 Peter 5.8. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he's a serpent, he's a dragon, he's an adversary, he's a slander, he's accuser. But notice what else it says here. It says that he's the deceiver of the whole world. He's a deceiver. He works in deception. 
He's manipulative. He's wily. He's got tactics. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us what the God of this age has done. In their case, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, speaking of the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory to cry, of Christ, who's the image of God. So, so Satan has blinded lost people from seeing the glory of Christ. He's deceiving the whole world. 2 Corinthians 2, 11 tells us that he uses schemes, he uses tactics, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, his tactics. So, so we've got an enemy here. A deceiver, a manipulator, an accuser, an opponent, a dragon, a serpent who is kicked out of heaven and he is violently wanting to come against God and his church. So how does Satan respond to being thrown down? Does he just sit back and take a day off? Does he say to God, well, let's just let bygones be bygones? Does he actually ask God to, does he forgive God? No, what does Satan do now on earth, that he's been thrown down. Verse 12 tells us the ultimate mission of Satan. If you want to know what the ultimate mission of Satan is, look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. The devil is mad. The devil is angry. Because he knows the end of the story. He's read the screenplay. He knows how the book ends. He knows that God in his sovereignty has appointed a day of judgment where he will be thrown into the lake of fire to burn forever and ever as the enemy of our souls. He knows that. He knows what the end is. He knows his time is short. So like a caged lion or like a pit bull on a leash, he's going to try to inflict as much damage as he can in the short time that God has allotted for him. Now, he can't do anything that God does not allow him to do in his sovereignty, but he is intensely bent on venting his full wrath. He's angry. He's wrathful. And who is the object of the wrath of Satan? Who's the object of the wrath of Satan? It is us. It is God's people. It is the church. Look down at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is us. If you pardon the French, the devil is hell-bent on destroying the gospel, destroying the church, destroying everything that God stands for. So let me just ask you a question. If Satan is a deceiver, if he's an opponent, if he's an accuser, if he's a serpent, what is he going to attack the most? The gospel. He's going to come against the gospel. Because let me just tell you this, Satan hates the very idea of anybody getting saved. Satan, let me just tell you this, Satan hates the fact that we're going to go into a Bogtaw village with people that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ before. He hates that. He hates it when you're going to go share Christ with your friends and with your neighbors. He stands opposed to that, so he's going to come and attack the gospel. Now, we know he doesn't succeed. We know that he loses in the end. We know that he is not victorious, but let me just tell you this, he sure leaves a trail of bodies on his way. He sure leaves some destruction in his wake. So for this morning, I just want to ask a very simple question. 
as we draw this sermon series to a close. How do I fight the good fight? If I'm going to live a missional lifestyle of advancing the gospel, of sharing Christ, how do I fight the good fight in the midst of this intense spiritual battle? As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy 4, 6-7, Paul tells about his aim and his life. He's at the end of his life. He says, I've already been poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul says, I fought the good fight. In 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy, fight the good fight. So how do we fight the good fight? If we're going to live missionally, if we're going to engage a lost world with the gospel, if we're going to share Christ with others, we're in the crosshairs of the enemy, the devil. How do we fight the good fight? How do we, how do, we do this? How do we wage the good warfare against an enemy that wants nothing less than the destruction of lost people for eternity. What I want us to see this morning are four things. Four ways, four things, four issues that emerge from this text in Revelation and from the text in Revelation 14 that tell us how we fight the good fight as we live missionally, as we advance the gospel, as we share Christ. First of all, it's this. We fight the good fight by proclaiming the cross of Christ. Bottom line, it always comes back to the cross. Notice what he says in verse 11. Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. They've conquered. In the Greek, that's the word Nike. You didn't know that the tennis shoes borrowed Greek. Nike means to conquer. Now, we know that we're not the ones that have conquered Satan. The the, the, the wording there in the original language means that we come on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. We come on the foundation on the blood of the Lamb. The, the, The blood of the Lamb, Christ's death on the cross, has already secured the victory. So when we fight the battle, we're standing on the foundation of what Jesus has already done. When we proclaim the gospel, we're moving into enemy territory. And what we're doing is, is we are, we're standing upon the bloody cross of Jesus Christ and advancing that message into a lost world. And so we fight by continually talking about, preaching, discussing, uh, of elevating the cross of Christ. Now, we see a bunch of camera angles, a bunch of images in the book of Revelation. We see signs of heaven and earth. Right now in heaven, there are people in heaven who fought the good fight. They finished the race. They are in heaven right now because they have died and they've gone to heaven and they've, they've gone to heaven because of something that they have done. Now, what gets you into heaven? You've trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, let's look at Revelation chapter 7. Turn over with me to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to be there twice. We've got to kind of go back, but I want to show you Revelation 7. What's going on in heaven? Revelation 7, look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Can't go into all the details of who these people are, but there are a great multitude in heaven... 
And John says, who are these people and why are they here? They're here in heaven because they've washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, how did they endure through all the things that this world has thrown at them? They've stood their ground. They've believed in the cross of Christ. They've believed in the blood of the Lamb. They've held fast to the blood of the Lamb. The precious blood of the Lamb. One of the most powerful hymns of all time is by Charles Wesley. And can it be? This hymn poignantly describes what it means to be proclaiming the blood of Jesus. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? So the first way that we fight the good fight is simply by preaching, proclaiming, standing on the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ. But secondly, we fight the good fight by holding fast to the word of Christ. Notice what else it says. Turn back to Revelation 12 again, verse 11, the second half there of verse 11. They have conquered him, number one, by the blood of the Lamb, and number two, by the word of their testimony. Now, we need to be real careful here. This is where the original language helps us. This does not mean that we just share our testimony. That's important. It's not talking about like a testimony service where we stand up and we give our testimonies. Yes, you should give your testimony. Yes, it's important that we share our testimony. What this means here in the original language is is that we stand upon the testimony of the word of Christ. In other words, we hold fast to the word. We give testimony to the scriptures. We give testimony to the word of Christ. We hold fast to the word of Christ. We fight for this word. What does Jude tell us? Jude chapter 1, verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we, it's very simple. Spiritual warfare is very simple. You talk about Jesus and the cross and you hold fast to the word. That's how Satan is conquered. By the blood of the Lamb, by the cross of Christ, and by the testimony of the Word. But notice what else John tells us here. The second, the last part of verse 11. For they love not their lives even to death. We don't hold on loosely to our lives. What does Jesus tell us in Matthew 10, 38 through 39? Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Doesn't make sense, but Jesus says if you lose your life, that's when you really find it. When you hold on loosely to your life, when you give up your life, that's when you really find life. What was Paul's aim? I mean, what was Paul's aim in his life? Acts 20:24 probably gives Paul's ultimate aim of his life. Acts 20:24. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value. I don't care about my life. My life is not precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Okay, chapter 12. A ruthless enemy. 
He's hell-bent on destroying the gospel. He's hell-bent on destroying the church. His wrath is great. He's come down with great fury. He's going to attack the church of Jesus Christ. He's going to do everything he can to stop the spread of the gospel. How do we conquer? We keep preaching Jesus. And we keep holding fast to the word. Martin Luther said it well in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. What What does Martin Luther say? And though this world with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. You want to know how to topple Satan with one little word? What's the word? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So we fight the good fight by standing on the basis of the blood and the cross of Jesus Christ and by holding fast to the testimony of his word. But we see two other ways. Turn over to Revelation 14. It's two books over. This is another heavenly scene, not an earthly scene. Let's look and see here. Verses 1 through 5. This may get a little confusing, so hopefully we'll we'll keep it all together here. Because sometimes Revelation is a little confusing. Revelation 14, 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Okay. John sees Jesus, and then he sees 144,000. Let's just talk real briefly here about the identity of the 144,000. There's a lot of confusion. If a Jehovah's Witness has shown up at your house, you probably hear all these different things. Let me just tell you what I believe, the 144,000. It's very simple, okay? It's the total number of God's people. It's the total number of Christians. You are part of the 144,000. It represents all Christians at all times. Now, Revelation is a book to be taken symbolically. You're going to have trouble if you read it literalistically. Numbers mean things. It doesn't mean that if there's 144,001, the number gets messed up. It's a symbolic number. I'll just tell you what the symbolism means. 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12. The Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. 12, the 12 apostles of the New Testament, times 1,000. 1,000 is a number for completeness. You take 12 times 12 times 1,000, it's symbolic for the full number of God's people from both Testaments. But let's let John interpret John. I love what Artaxerxes says. Let's let John interpret John. Let's let Revelation interpret a revelation, okay? So go back to Revelation 7, because this 144,000 has already shown up. This is the second time they show up. Who is this 144,000? It's very easy if we just let the scripture interpret itself. Revelation 7, verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending 
from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, in Revelation 14, they're sealed on their foreheads. Here, they're sealed on their foreheads. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, he gives a list of 12 tribes. If you're paying attention, I don't have time to do this this morning, but Dan is missing from the 12 tribes, and it's not in the correct order of the 12 tribes. So don't look at this literalistically like this is just exactly the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a symbolic number. But look at verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude. Okay, it's the same people that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's the great multitude. In one instance, it's called the great multitude, and the other instance, it's called the 144,000. It's the same people. Don't get caught up in the symbolism. I don't want you to get lost in that. What I want you to get lost in this morning, if there's anything to get lost in, is the third way we fight. The third way we fight, and it's simply this. We rest secure in our victory of being redeemed. We rest secure. Go back to chapter 14. Regardless of how you interpret this, We have been sealed on our foreheads with God and with the Lamb. Sealing means that we have got God's protection. We are God's ownership. We are in God's grip. We are resting secure that nothing can snatch us out of God's hand. We are eternally secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He has redeemed us from the earth. He sealed us. If you're a child of God this morning, you've been sealed by God. Now, I can't see your seal. Can you see mine? It's on my forehead, but I can't see yours. It's symbolic. We've all been sealed with Christ. But notice what else it says. Verses 3 and 4. We've been redeemed. We've been redeemed. He says it twice. I don't have time. Maybe one of these days I'll get the guts to preach through Revelation. Okay? Maybe I'll get the guts to do it. But one thing you need to know about Revelation is this. Almost every image that you see in Revelation is just a retelling of the Exodus story. A lot of the scenes that you see in Exodus show up in Revelation. Some people have called Revelation the second Exodus. Now think about this whole issue of redemption. In Exodus, the nation of Israel were in bondage, right? They were in slavery to Egypt. God says, I'm going to get you out of slavery. The way I'm going to do it is you're going to sacrifice a lamb, a spotless lamb. You're going to put the blood on the doorposts and lintels of your home. And then the angel of death is going to pass over. You're going to be free. I'm going to lead you to the promised land. I'm going to lead you to the Red Sea. You're going to settle in the promised land. You're going to go from slavery to salvation. That's the Exodus. That's what redemption means. But spiritually, it's the same thing. We have been in bondage, not to Egypt. We've been in bondage to sin and to Satan. And God has provided the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, and we don't put blood over the doors of our houses, we put the blood over our hearts, and then the wrath of God is taken by Jesus. We don't have to experience the wrath of God, and God delivers us ultimately to the promised land. We've been rescued, and we've been redeemed. And so one of the ways that you fight the good fight is you rest secured in the fact that I have been sealed. I am eternally secure. I can bank my life on the promises of God that he has sealed you. He has bought you. You are his. Let's listen to the powerful words of Jesus. I love John 10, 27 through 29, probably some of my favorite passages of scripture. Listen to the words of Jesus. My sheep, 
hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Aren't you thankful? Please say amen. That you are in the secure grip of Jesus Christ, sealed and nothing can take you out of that. How do you fight the fight? When Satan comes against you, you rest secured in the fact that nothing can harm me because I am sealed by Almighty God. I'm in his eternal grip. Now let's talk about harps for a moment. John hears harps. And there's a lot of confusion here, okay? Sometimes we've got a Tom and Jerry theology, don't we? How many of you have seen those Tom? All right, here's heaven. We're sitting in diapers up on a cloud playing these little harps. I'm sorry. If that's heaven, I'm not there. I'm not going to be in a diaper. And I'm not going to be plinking a harp for eternity on some cloud. What in the world is a harp? I'm not going to be up there in a diaper for a million years, okay? I'm just telling you. That's not the picture. That's Tom and Jerry theology. That's Bugs Bunny. We have to appreciate the harp for the original audiences. The harp was not one of these plinky things we think about. The harp for that culture was more like a guitar, more like a banjo, if you will. It was this rocking, powerful, joyous music that you would strum that, that celebrated God's joy. It wasn't this somber plink, plink. Please spare us this for a million years, God. No, it was a joyous thing. And they're singing in heaven. Let me just tell you this. If you don't like singing, you're not going to like heaven. All throughout Revelation, they are singing. They're singing a new song. Notice he says, they sang a new song. Verse 3. What's the new song they sang? Let's let John interpret John. Let's go back and see the new song. Turn back with me again to Revelation chapter 5. We sang it this morning. The new song. What what are we going to be singing in heaven? We don't have to guess. We're told right in Revelation 5 what we'll be singing in heaven. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and they sang a new song. Okay, what's the content of the new song? I'm glad you asked, John. It's right there in quotations. What are we going to be singing? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. The word literally there means slaughtered, talking about Jesus. You were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What will we be singing about in heaven? Blood. The cross, Jesus, the new song. We will forever be singing about the amazing accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins to forgive us and to rescue us out of bondage to our sin and bondage to Satan. And and it's interesting. Part of our warfare is worship. Is worship. 1 Corinthians 2.2 Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's preoccupation was, it didn't mean that everything, Paul wasn't going to preach anything besides the cross. Obviously he did. But what he's saying is, the cross is the preoccupation of my life. Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Okay, here's a side note. If you don't like singing, you're not going to like heaven. And if you don't like loud music, you're not going to like heaven. Notice what he says. Back to Revelation chapter 14. If you don't like it loud, you're not going to like heaven. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. 
It's like you're standing under Niagara Falls in a, in a, in a thunderstorm. Heaven is going to be loud. Heaven is going to be joyous and exciting. Heaven is going to be focused on the crucified Savior. And, and we are going to be there in the midst of all of it, being able to worship King Jesus. Now, here's a weird description here of the 144,000. If you caught it, notice what it says in verse 4. It is these who've not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, what in the world does this mean? Okay, first of all, um, only men get to go to heaven. Sorry, ladies, and only men who've never been married. So only virgin men get to go to heaven, right? Is that what he's saying here? If that were the case, all of us are in trouble, except for virgin men, which aren't very few and far between in our world today. Who's this great multitude? Remember, Revelation is symbolic. He's not saying literally virgins. Where have we seen the imagery of a virgin to describe people who belong to Jesus? the bride of Christ. It's a metaphor for the church being the pure bride of Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven two, Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The church is the pure bride of Christ. It's a metaphor for the church, not literal virgins, but a metaphor. What did Paul say in Ephesians 5? Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's a metaphor. So you've got three ways that we fight the good fight that we've seen so far. Number one, we proclaim, we preach, we teach, we stand on the blood of Christ. Number two, we hold fast to the word of God. We don't capitulate on the word of God. We hold fast to the testimony of the word of God. And number three, we rest secured in our eternal security that the victory has been won and we've been bought, we've been redeemed. But let's look at the fourth way. What's the fourth way that we fight the good fight? It's simply this. It's it's very simple, yet very profound. It's simply this. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. Notice what it says there. In the middle of verse 4, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. What in the world does that mean? We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Does that mean that Jesus is walking down the streets of gold up in heaven and we're supposed, somehow supposed to get our GPS and follow Him up there? What does it mean that we follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Now, I've already shown you this chapter of, 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 of Scripture, this, this verse of Scripture this morning, but I want to show it to you again. What did Jesus say about himself while he was on earth and about us? Matthew 10, 38 through 39. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Follow me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It simply means this. If you're going to live the lifestyle that God has called you to live and being missional, you abandon everything for the sake of Christ. You're willing to to give up your life, take up your cross, die to self. What was Jesus' path, by the way? On earth, what was Jesus' path? If we're to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, where did Jesus go? It was a path to the cross. It was a path of death. 
It was a path of suffering. It was a path of service. So if we're going to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, we need to realize that our path that we walk is a path of death. Dying to our wants, dying to our needs, dying to our agendas, dying to everything except for the will of Christ. And let me just say this. Are you willing to die to yourself and follow Christ even if it's uncomfortable or even if it hurts? Most Americans say, Jesus, I'll follow you if you give me a really good life. But the moment we experience heartache and pain and suffering or things are uncomfortable, we we give up this following of Jesus. Jesus says we must follow him in radical obedience. Where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go? If we're to follow Jesus, where did he go? Ultimately to the cross of Calvary. Turn with me to 1 Peter, if you will, just for a moment. Just a few books over. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter tells us that we're to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, he says, we're to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We're to follow the ways of Jesus. John tells us in Revelation, we're to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me and follow me, he must take up his cross daily, die to self, lose your life to find it, following Jesus. 1 Peter 2, verse 20. Actually, let's, let's start in verse 21. For this is to what you've been called. Paul, Peter's talking about suffering. You've been called to suffering. For this is what you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might what? Follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who just judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. We're called to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. To follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And and as you engage lost people, as you live a missional lifestyle, as you attempt to, to live a life being sent out on a mission, you're going to be in the crosshairs of the devil. You're going to be engaged in intense spiritual warfare. And Christ is saying, if you're going to follow me wherever I go, you need to follow me to the way of the cross. Preach the cross. Teach the cross. Stand on the basis of the blood of the cross. You've got to hold fast to the word of Christ. And you also need to stand secure in your security of being sealed unto the day of salvation. And here's the promise. What did Revelation 12 said? We conquer. Nike. We don't conquer, but in a sense, we're victorious because Christ has conquered. And we can go forward with confidence because the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ and his church. We can rest in the victory that Christ has won. We can live lives of worship awaiting that day of ultimate worship in heaven. We can engage a world with confidence because we know the end of the story. You've probably heard the old gospel song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me 
the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Here's my question for you this morning. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Are you one that can be said, I follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. They are those that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. As you spend some time in silent prayer this morning, there may be a one of two types of people in this room this morning. The first type of people that I may be describing this morning are those of you that have never, ever, initially, for the very first time, decided to follow Jesus. You've not trusted Christ for salvation. You've not repented of your sins and asked Jesus to forgive you and have embraced Him as Lord and Savior of your life. And you know that if you were to stand before God today, the sentence upon your life would be hell because you are guilty before a holy God. And today can be the day of salvation for those that have never, ever trusted in Jesus Christ alone. Would today be the day that you trust in Christ and it be said of you, I follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The other group of people I may be describing this morning, which maybe most of us in this room, we're Christians, we're believers. And maybe we've gotten sidetracked. Maybe we're not following the Lamb wherever He goes. Maybe we're not resting secure in our being sealed. Maybe we're not living lives of worship or we're not holding fast to the word of God. We're not preaching the gospel to ourselves and to others. And maybe you just need to hear the announcement this morning that there's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. There's cleansing through Christ and that he's not calling us to perfection. He's calling us to obedience and he gives us the strength to be able to follow him. So whatever God may call you to do this morning, Please don't leave this place without the song in your ears. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Spend some time in prayer this morning going directly to your Heavenly Father through Jesus.